Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, January 29th, and we're taking a deep dive on the so-called universal banks today. Those keeping score at home, that's Bank of America, Citigroup, and JP Morgan. I'm your host, Michael Douglas. I'm joined by Matt Frankel, as per usual. Now, listeners, this is part two in a three-part series we're running on the big banks. Part one was our December 11th episode, Breaking Down the Investment Banks, that is Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. We had some other news-driven and end-of-year stories to finish up between then and now, but now we're on part two, the universal banks. As you can imagine, at some point we'll be doing part three, the commercial banks. Now, we'll be running these banks through the Anand Chakavalu framework. Anand is the managing editor of Fool.com and really, uh, back in 2014, wrote a fantastic article really breaking down how to think about a bank and really how to understand its underlying business model. So we'll be running them through that framework, just like we did the investment banks on December 11th. His framework for how to understand a bank stock is a great accompaniment to this episode. So shoot me an email at industryfocus.fool.com if you need the link. We're not going to get uh, too much into the details of the various ratios because he explains kind of the reasoning behind them. Um, So again, that is a useful accompaniment to this episode. Okay. So, with that in mind, let's first talk in generalities. And Matt, I'll finally let you start talking. <laughs> what <laughs> What is a universal bank, and how is it different from, well, another kind of bank? So, you pretty much have three kinds of banks. Um, you have commercial banks, which are your typical savings and loans. Wells Fargo is a good example of this. Mm-hmm. They're, most of their business is simply taking in money as deposits and loaning it out to customers and profiting from the spread between them. On the other hand, you have investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, and they do uh, M&A advisory, they do trading, they have equity and debt underwriting. Um, They're the the banks that are behind the IPOs that you hear about. Mm -hmm. Um, Universal banks kind of do both. They do traditional commercial banking, which is why a lot of listeners probably have accounts at Bank of America, Citigroup, or JP Morgan Chase. Um, and they also do investment banking activities. They all have big wealth management businesses. They participate in advisory and you know underwrite debt, equity offerings, and do have big trading desks, which is where a lot of their assets are, as we'll get to in a minute. Right. And the first place that you can see this is by looking at their income statements. So you look at each bank's income statement, and it will tell you that there are different revenue types. So um, in all cases, between 41 and 49% of their revenue comes from consumer banking, right? For It's 41% for Bank of America, 49% for Citigroup, 48% for JP Morgan. Yes. Um, the rest is kind of spread among various either commercial or investment banking activities. Um, Bank of America is kind of the they, they kind of name their business segments weird. So if you're looking at their income statement, it might be a little tough to figure out what's what. <laughs> but just to kind of run down, consumer banking obviously is what you just referred to with the 41%. Um, they have another one called Global Wealth and Investment Management, which is their brokerage business and things like that. Um, global banking is the M&A portion of their investment bank, M&A and uh, underwriting. And then you have global markets, which is their trading desk. They kind of break it into two. Whereas the other ones are pretty straightforward if you're reading an income statement. Cities is called the Institutional Clients Group, which kind of refers to all of their investment banking stuff. JP Morgan's is actually called the Corporate and Investment Bank, so obviously that's what that's talking about. Um, Bank of America is kind of the only one that doesn't have straightforward names to their business segments. So just keep that in mind if you're reading their any earnings reports in the future from these three banks. 
Right. And so the key takeaway here is that they all have similar-ish revenue mixes. I mean, sure, Bank of America's got 23% coming from... Um, of their revenue coming from global banking, whereas J.P. Morgan on the commercial banking side, which is their uh, most equivalent, is nine percent. But I mean, it's all pretty similar. These are universal banks, meaning that you know their consumer banking is the largest individual part of their uh, revenue mix, but they've got substantial percentages elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. Um... They're also kind of all three are pretty similar in size. Uh, Citigroup is the smallest of the three, if you can even use that word, with a little over 1.8 trillion in assets. Uh, J.P. Morgan is the biggest, with a little over 2.5 trillion. But when you really think about it, that's not that big of a range. So these are all comparable banks in sizes, in size rather. Um, it's about to say, what's 700 billion between friends, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they're all also similar in terms of the amount of money they loan out. Um, all three have about a third of their assets in loans, give or take. Um, all three have all the loans well covered by deposits. So they're, for the most part, getting or <clears throat> loaning money from low-cost deposits, just like most commercial banks do. Uh, the rest of their assets are mostly tied up in, in their trading desks. Um, let's see. Right. All three are, you know, comparable in terms of efficiency of the business. We've talked about efficiency ratio before. Um, they're all within a couple percentages of each other, and all have grown pr- at pretty much the same rate over the past couple of years. Um, all three had either six or seven percent loan growth over the past year. Revenue was between one and three percent. So it's not like one is really outpacing the other three. They're actually. A, all pretty similar, which is kind of an ongoing theme here. Yes, something we <laughs> talked about right before, and it was like, well, you know, there's really, it, 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 of course, there are differences. But when you're looking at these, really, from a sort of long-term investing standpoint, kind of really broadly, it's not an enormous uh, difference at this snapshot in time. A um, couple points that I'll I'll note. So, uh, Matt, as you pointed out. You know their loans are well covered, or, or overcovered, even if you will, by deposits. So they take they have more in deposits than they are loaning out. Um, but because of all those securities, they're also having to take on debt of one kind or another. And usually, it's debts about the size of equivalent to about a th- between a third and half of their deposits. Um, so that's sort of that additional money they're taking in to kind of juice up their um, their balances, so that they can then uh, you know take on securities and and things like that. Um, efficiency ratio, as you pointed out, kind of between 58% and 62%. Remember that 60% is kind of the number that you want to see, and you want to see lower than that where possible. So Bank of America is a little higher. Citigroup and JP Morgan are a little bit lower. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how that all works. Now, thinking about the next part of Anand's framework, which is, well, Kind of how much money are they making, and sort of how are they making that money? To me, this is where things get really interesting because, of course, as we've talked about a couple times, I don't know if anyone noticed. You know, these are universal banks. <laughs> I think we've said that a couple times now, and as a result, net interest income, while a substantial proportion of their uh, net revenue isn't their entire net revenue, um, and in some cases, it's really about fifty-fifty between net interest income and non-interest income, which is kind of a different thing than you would normally expect if you've looked at mostly, you know, your regional and relatively small cap banks. 
Right. Bank of America and J.P. Morgan are actually almost 50-50, um, a little bit in the in favor of interest income. Right. Uh, City, it's about two-thirds interest income and one-third non-interest income. And, um, and just kind of to clear it up, non-interest income is things like advisory fees, uh, wealth management fees, pretty much anything other than them profiting from the difference between money they're loaning out and money they're taking in. Right. So w- with all of that in mind, um, let's let's go ahead and take a look at part two, which is, well, how expensive is the bank? And when it comes down to it, valuation is really, really critical in banks because, as you mentioned, Matt, we're not seeing for these big banks a ton of growth. I mean, sure, listen, single digit you know, deposit growth and loan growth is great, and single digit revenue growth is great too. You're not going to tend to see double digit growth here. And so valuation becomes really, really important because these are large, mature companies. Yeah, and there's a couple of different ways you can value bank stocks. Um, price to earnings is the traditional valuation metric that's used pretty much for every sector of the market. And that's definitely helpful here. Um, banks, you are my favorite way to evaluate them is the price to their tangible book value or just their book value, depending on which one you're looking at. Um, price to tangible book value is how much a bank's stock is trading for relative to the value of its assets. In other words, if a bank decided to close its store today and sold off all of its assets, how much could it reasonably get? Um, if you include things like goodwill and you know brand names, stuff like that, that is your price to book value. If you don't include any of those intangible items, as the name implies, that is your tangible book value. Um, and as far as these three banks go, this is where it starts to get a little bit different. Uh, Citigroup is by far the cheapest of the three. Um, they trade at just over 1.1 times their book value, uh, 1.3 times their tangible book value. Um, Bank of America is kind of the middle one here. They traded about 1.35 times their book value, 1.9 times their tangible book. Uh, JP Morgan is the expensive one. Uh, about one and three quarters times their book value and 2.2 times their tangible book. With banks, though, you have to remember you're getting what you pay for. Citigroup has a lot of risky assets on its balance sheet, mainly left over from the financial crisis. And you kind of see that as your valuations go up among these three, you see less and less of that risky stuff on there. Yeah. So one of the key things to think about when investing is not just returns. Everyone talks about returns, but also risk-adjusted returns. So that is, I mean, I don't personally view risk as volatility. I view risk as the likelihood that everything just goes belly up. And so, for because for me, I'm not concerned about volatility because I'm 28. And so I've got plenty of time to write out lots of volatility. But for me, the really key question is sort of what's the, the risk that things don't pan out well? And um, and so I, I will tend toward safer businesses for exactly that reason. Now, to be clear, you know, Citigroup is, you know, perfectly fine. <laughs> but, um, but you do tend to get, uh, you, when you kind of adjust your potential returns for risk, that does sometimes create a different picture than what you had when you were just looking at potential returns. And so I would just throw that out there as a caution for anyone, particularly some growth-minded investors like me to think about. Um, but yeah, as you pointed out, you get what you pay for. And I think that actually segues us very very nicely to part three, which is what is the bank's earning power? And here is where JP Morgan certainly starts to pull away from the pack a little bit. Um, you know, return on equity, you want to see 10%. JP Morgan's is 11%. Citigroup's was 7.3%. And Bank of America's around 8%. 
Yeah, uh, same goes for return on assets. You want to see about 1% here. JP Morgan's was 1.04. Um, Citigroup's was 0.87. Bank of America's was 0.93 for the year. Um, like I said, efficiency, they're all pretty much evenly matched. But JP Morgan really stands out from the pack here. That means they're earning more than enough money to cover their cost of capital. Um, Bank of America is getting there. They're improving very rapidly, which is why I think they command kind of a premium valuation to Citigroup, even though the metrics don't really, you know, justify trading for, you know, a 30% premium or whatever it is. Um, so JP Morgan is definitely the most profitable today. Um, Bank of America is the most rapidly improving of the three is the way I'd put it. And that's kind of where you get the three kind of levels of valuation that you see between these. So that turns us to part four, which is what risk is the bank taking on to achieve those earnings? Now, this is one of the tougher things to quantify, particularly in a many year bull market, right? Because frankly, your uh, non-performing loans are going to tend to be a relatively small percentage of things, even if you're kind of lending out in kind of a risky fashion because the economy's humming along, unemployment's going down, wages are going up, people in general are doing pretty well. The real key when thinking about risk is what happens when the tide goes out and when the economy turns. And so, you know, right now you look at all three of these banks, their non-performing loans percentages are between 0.6% and 0.7% of gross loans, okay? That's nothing. <laughs> um, and their allowances, which is the money that they're setting aside to basically cover that, um, is in most cases about double what's currently non-performing. So that's a very conservative, very appropriate amount of money to set aside, recognizing that not literally, not every loan gets paid back. Um, so I feel fine about their risk outlook for now. I think one of the key things to consider, though, is that all three of these banks suffered substantially when the financial crisis came through. And one of the big questions that any investor is going to have to ask going forward is what did they learn and how are they going to do things differently next time? One thing I'd add to that is that um, in a couple of months, you'll start seeing headlines about the bank's stress tests. Um, this is where that information can be very useful yeah. because it can give you an idea what can happen if things don't go very well. Um, I always say every every investment recommender looks like a genius when the market just keeps going up and up. You, you can't make bad picks. <laughs> but in the same kind of logic applies here. Banks look great when everything's going fine. Consumers have plenty of money. Unemployment's at a historic low. But it's when unemployment jumps to 6 or 7%. Um, you know, wage growth goes to a standstill, you have a deflationary environment. That's when you start to kind of see where the really good banks are. And um, this is what I'd say in a couple, in a few months when you start seeing the stress tests in the news, that's something to pay attention to. Yes, because one of the key things to remember with banks is that they are institutions that use a fair amount of leverage. And so when thinking about, well, that leverage, that means that they, they don't keep enough cash to pay off everything, you know, on the spot, right? That that's why, you know, you had banks, you had runs in the banks back in the Great Depression and sort of all of that. And so the idea here is that you want to make sure that they have kind of appropriately priced their risk profile. And uh, fortunately, the stress tests are sort of the best guess that the US regulatory regime has for how to basically grade whether they're doing that appropriately. And so that's going to be very, very important to look at. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about these companies going forward. Because of course, one of the the weaknesses, if you will, uh, of the 
uh, framework that Onnit developed is that it really is good for a snapshot in time only. It's not necessarily that helpful for looking really far in the future or really far in the past with the usual caveats, nobody can predict the future. <laughs> but but let's talk about what are going to be some big catalysts for these companies in the coming months and years. And of course, the first one is something that's been in a lot of headlines. If you've been watching the uh, stock market recently, and it's tax reform and what its implications are for businesses. Yeah, and um, <laughs> banks in particular, tax reform is kind of interesting. Um, it was negative at first. We talked about this a little bit last week. But tax reform caused a lot of these banks, all three of these that I'm, we're talking about here, to take pretty big hits. They carry uh, what's called a deferred tax asset on their balance sheet, pretty much old losses that they can use to defer or to lower future taxes. Citigroup's is enormous, as you might, might, as you might imagine. Um, so they all took pretty big hits this past quarter. Which is why the, if you read any of the bank earnings reports, they're kind of tough to follow in some cases. Right. Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, banks, all three of these operated effective tax rates in around the 30% ballpark. Uh, bank of America's last year was 29%. Citigroup's was 30%. Uh, JP Morgan's 29% or sorry, 28% in 2016, 32% this year. Um, so these are pretty high tax rates. Uh, the corporate tax rate dropping to 21% will undoubtedly produce a big boost in profits on these banks' income statements. Right. Um, this is why you've seen in the headlines, you know, Bank of America giving out $1,000 bonuses to employees, banks raising their minimum wages. Uh, just to give one example of a bank that's quantified this, uh, J.P. Morgan um, estimates that their effective tax rate is going to drop to 19%. This is so. This is a bank that's you know generating billions and billions of dollars in profit each quarter, now you're telling them they can keep an extra roughly 10% of that. So this is a big deal. Um, some of it's going to go to employees. Some will eventually be competed away, which is kind of a after effect of tax reform in historical cases. But some of this is just going to you know, boost their, re- their returns, boost profitability. Right. And they've certainly been upfront about the potential that this could mean additional share repurchases and a higher dividend. So um, that's certainly something that all bank investors should be keeping an eye on for the next year. But I, I think that it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, we want to return X billion dollars to shareholders. What I'm always more interested in seeing is how and in what ways they plan to reinvest at least a portion of that money into the business. You know, is it improving online capabilities? Is it figuring out how to do better automation so that um, they can remove some costs from their structure. You know, is it developing new platforms, new ways of doing things? I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for a bank that is forward-looking and can really think through how to better thread the needle. And so that's something I always want to see. Um, another thing to keep in mind for all banks, just about, is interest rate increases. So the Fed has signaled that they're planning to put in three interest rate increases next year. Um, some of the big banks are even expecting perhaps more than that. And so there's a lot of opportunity there for them to basically boost that net interest margin further. So particularly for Citigroup, that's good news. Although, frankly, Bank of America and JP Morgan are still about 50-50 um, interest uh, income versus non-interest income. So that's certainly an opportunity for them as well. Yeah, Bank of America actually has a, a disproportional share of low-cost deposits you know, um, like savings and checking deposits that they're paying virtually zero interest on. Right. So Bank of America has a lot of that, so they should see a nice little benefit here. 
These won't benefit as much from interest rate margins as, say, like as a pure commercial bank like Wells Fargo. But we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's be, again because you know there's that substantial proportion that's not in uh, not non-interest um, income. So the third thing to kind of keep in mind, looking at these guys broadly, is well, the stock market's doing really well. Uh, certainly, uh, I think we've all noticed that. So that means wealth balances, uh, wealth management balances are up. And all three of these banks have substantial wealth management divisions. So that's good for them because that means their assets under management fees are going up. But and excuse me. If you've been listening to Industry of Focus Financials for a little while, you will probably expect what's coming next. Trading desk revenue is down because volatility is down. And so it's one of those things where the banks do have this kind of safety net that helps them in a counter-cyclical um, way so that you know when the economy's doing poorly, the stock market's doing poorly, usually trading desk revenue boosts. But flip side, <laughs> that does mean that right now it's a bit of a drag for them. Yeah, a couple things to watch in this case. Um, wealth man or wealth management balances, yes, they're going up and up and up for market performance. You, what, the term you want to pay attention to on these earnings statements are net inf- inflows or outflows, unfortunately. Um, an inflow means that the bank is taking in more investor deposits than are being paid out as withdrawals. So this is, means they're kind of going to grow over the long run, whether or not the market continues to go up. So that's kind of a sign of a healthy wealth management business more so than just the market going up. Uh, trading revenue, as Michael said, can kind of help to balance out poor market performance, which actually kind of gives these universal banks an advantage over pure commercial banks. It kind of gives them a, a rising income stream when things go poorly. Um, a bank that relies heavily on trading revenue, Goldman Sachs never made more than they did in 2009, just to kind of give you an idea. Um, so it's kind of an interesting dynamic on the investment banking side. Um, but yeah, wealth management, definitely keep an eye on the inflows. Uh, some banks are actually starting to experience some outflows, which is concerning. So keep an eye on that. Yeah, for sure. So with all that in mind, Matt, it, we talked about this a little bit before the episode, but I look at all three of these banks and I say, okay, I'm not, you know, I think Citigroup is cheap for a reason. And so I, I tend to shy away uh, from it. I, I've always believed in just kind of trying to buy sort of quote, the best business where possible, and then paying up for that quality if I need to. Um, I tend to approach um, appliances and uh, running shoes the same way, (laughs) for better or for worse, Um, just on the principle that, you know, probably last longer. Um, But I think Bank of America and JP Morgan each have kind of things that look good about them and things that I'm not as excited about. Um, I, I... I'm notoriously gun shy around the big banks. I've I've never actually bought any of them, um, and that's just because I tend to think that they aren't really primed for market beating returns and market beating growth long term. Plus, um, their balance sheets can be a little bit opaque. Even with all that we've explained, there's a lot that we haven't, and that as an investor makes it hard for me to pick one to invest in or even a group to invest in. Yeah, out of the three, I would pick Bank of America just because, well, first of all, I, I own Bank of America stock. <laughs> right, um, so obviously. I, like I bought it when it was a whole lot cheaper than it was today, just to be, to be clear. <laughs> um, I, I And this is what Michael was kind of talking about. is It's kind of tough to see where they would have market-beating returns over the long run. But in the wake of the financial crisis, Bank of America for $10 a share really looked you know, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Um, so 
having said that, if I had to buy one today, I would pick Bank of America just because I think their management team's done a fantastic job of integrating technology to become more efficient, mm-hmm. um, just generally improving their asset quality, um, really strategically reducing their footprint, um, just running a, a leaner and much higher quality operation than it was a few years ago. Um, and like we said, they're not even at the 10% ROE 10, and 1% ROA. So I think they have a ways to go still. So if I had to buy one today, I'd pick Bank of America. Good to know. Folks, which would you buy if you had to pick right now? Shoot us an email, industryfocus.fool.com. Curious to hear what you think. Folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus.fool.com. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Ann Henry. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. 